tonight I want us to look at part of what I think we need to know. If we're going to look at the kingdom of God in the New Testament, there are some things we need to understand about what the prophet said in the Old. If you're new with us tonight, you may be wondering or thinking, why, why do we need to study the kingdom of God? And if you were not with us in the very beginning, just by way of review, one of the things that we have learned is that the kingdom of God was the central or core message that Jesus preached. Over and over again, he said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And so it, it stands to reason that you and I need to understand what he was referring to, what he was teaching, and I believe it'll be a key for you to unlock not just the Gospels, but the rest of the New Testament if you understand what he was talking about. We have seen that the kingdom of God, by definition, does not refer to a place. Sometimes we think of a kingdom with a castle and so forth. The kingdom of God is not a place. It's not a geographical location. The kingdom of God also is not a people. It's not a reference to people. Although those of us that know Christ are very much a part of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God does not refer to the people, although we are certainly a part of it. The kingdom of God refers specifically to an attribute of the king. The kingdom of God refers to his ability to rule and the exercise of his will however he wants to exercise it. Typically, it's God in action. It's God doing something. And so when Jesus announced, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, he's saying that the God who acts is here. We went back to the Old Testament to see where the first reference was given to any idea of God being a king or ruling as a king. Now, we could, we could point out some things in, in Genesis where anyone that speaks and things happen, where he's able to create something out of nothing, well, that's, pretty, that's pretty kingly. But the first direct reference to the king we found in the book of Exodus. And we saw a, a story, a picture, a portrait of the king in Exodus that it's going to be repeated again and again and again. And it certainly is going to help us understand the message of Jesus. And that was simply this. In Exodus, the kingdom of God was the ruling power of God entering into human history, colliding with the powers the forces of darkness that were oppressing the people of God, and then setting them free so that they could serve him and follow him. And that is very much the imagery that the Apostle Paul uses on the other end of the Bible, where he talks about that you and I have been delivered from the kingdom of darkness and we have been translated or conveyed into the kingdom of the Son of his love. And so this, this picture of God entering history, colliding with the powers of darkness, Overcoming them and setting his people free was the very first description or reference to the king. We saw last week that under the kings David and Solomon, God goes a step further. He's not entering directly as he did in the time of Exodus, but now he is setting up a picture of what he's going to do in the future by establishing David and Solomon as kings over all Israel. And through their rule, we saw that every enemy was subdued, that justice for all people was ushered in, that a period of shalom or wholeness or prosperity, especially under Solomon, was ushered in. We saw that in 1 Kings 4. And so the environment changed, the political climate changed, people's experience changed because God was ruling through an anointed, adopted king. And we saw that described in Psalm 2. 
this idea of, a, of an earthly king who's going to be a vehicle for ushering in the kingdom of God is something that we're going to see very clearly in the New Testament. But tonight, in the prophets, he goes even further. You know, the time of David and Solomon didn't last. It was stunning. It was striking. It made an impression on the people for the rest of their lives, but it didn't last. And they would often be split between two directions in their thinking. They would be hearkening back to the time of David and Solomon saying, oh, would it happen again? And then with the prophets, they increasingly began looking forward to a time when he was in fact going to do it again and in a way that was far better than they could ever imagine. So after repeated slides and idolatry, the nation, the nation is about to be judged. You remember after Solomon, the kingdom split in the two parts. There were 12 tribes, 10 tribes to the north formed the northern kingdom of Israel. Two tribes to the south formed the kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom didn't last very long. They were so heavy into idolatry, they were so offensive to God that they were carried off into captivity pretty quickly. But the kingdom of Judah was facing destruction as they had one king after another after another who was sometimes great, which was rare. Other times they were a little bit great, but most of the time they were not so great. And they were offending God by their worship of false gods. Now what I want us to do is talk about the prophets as they speak a language of promise. The prophets speak a language of promise. Now, in the New Testament, when Jesus refers to the Old Testament, he, def he refers to it usually in one of three ways. He refers, to, he refers to the law, he refers to the Psalms, and he refers to the prophets. And a lot of times he just rolls the Psalms in with everything else, and he'll talk about the law and the prophets. And, and so, as we look at our Bible, we have different divisions for the way we look at the Old Testament. The first five books are called the Torah, and they are the book of the law that Jesus was referring to. But then we have books of history that we recognize. Jesus included that when he talked about the law and the prophets, but it came under the big heading of law. And then we have the books of wisdom, Psalms and Job's and Job and Song of Solomon and Proverbs. We have books of wisdom, and then we have the prophets. And tonight we're going to look at the prophets. The era of the prophets was ushered in by Elijah and Elisha. These were the two guys that were preaching in the northern kingdom just before it went under. And they were confronting King Ahab and his Phoenician wife, Jezebel, and their worship of false idols. And you had this confrontation. But as far as we know, they didn't write anything down. Their actions and words were recorded, but they didn't write. There's no book of the prophet Elijah lying around. Jonah appears to have been the first writing prophet. What's interesting about Jonah is that it reveals a couple things to us. First, it reveals to us God's heart for the nations. Who was Jonah sent to? Jonah sent to. Nineveh, Jonah. <laughs> that was a little hint if you needed it. Jonah was sent to Nineveh. And what was interesting about Nineveh is that that was the capital of Assyria, and the Assyrians were the people who were going to carry the northern tribes into captivity. But before that happened, God sent Jonah to them and offered them mercy that they would repent and come back or turn to God. And, and it's a picture that God is interested in the nations, not just Israel and Judah. He cares about all people of the earth. 
And he sends Jonah, and it gives us a snapshot into the heart of God. Now, the patience that he shows, even with Assyria, is the same kind of patience that he showed to the Amorites of Canaan. If you just want to jot down in the margin of your notes, Genesis 15, 16, it was in that conversation with Abraham, Genesis 15, 16, where God said that he was giving the Amorites of Canaan more time before the promised land was going to be delivered. He was being patient with them. He said their sins were not yet filled up. And so for 600 years, God delayed the judgment on the Amorites. Why? Because he was being merciful to them. He was being merciful to them. So Jonah shows us God's heart for the nations. He also shows us the attitude of Israel towards the nations. Do you remember how excited Jonah was to preach the good news to Nineveh? He wasn't, was he? He didn't want anything to do with Nineveh. He whined, complained, belly ached, and what ultimately happened to him was he got pitched overboard and swallowed by what? Big fish. Big fish. Doesn't say whale. Big fish. And, uh, and he had to be coerced into doing what God wanted him to do. Amos, Amos was the first to see a day beyond Israel's correction, beyond Israel's punishment, when God would restore the tabernacle of David. And he was going to do it in a way that would involve all the nations. Amos was the first one to see beyond their immediate circumstances to a future day that would involve all the nations. Hosea saw the heart of God who was, who was in love with Israel and burdened for Israel as she prostituted herself with false gods. And, and Hosea gives us this picture into that. He doesn't look to that future time, but he is looking and showing us the heart of God. Micah. Micah was the first to make God's case for Israel, to show them that they had violated the covenant at Mount Sinai, that they were guilty, that they were no longer worthy of the agreement that they had. But following judgment, Micah was the one who said that there would be a king who would lead a remnant back to Mount Zion. He was the one that said that the nations would stream to Jerusalem, and from Bethlehem a ruler would arise from the tribe of Judah, whose origins are from ancient times. His greatness would extend to the ends of the earth and there would be peace. So Micah saw what Amos saw, but he told us a little bit more about it. So all these guys are pretty much operating at the same time, but I'm giving you the sequence building up to Isaiah. Two prophets I want us to highlight. We're going to look at Isaiah tonight, and two weeks from now, or next Sunday night, excuse me, we're going to look at Daniel now, before you get all excited, we're only going to look at Daniel in the sense of how does he teach us or tell us about the kingdom of God. And if you want to read ahead, you could read Daniel 2 and Daniel 7. Daniel 2 and Daniel 7. But tonight we're going to focus at Isaiah. Let me, let me give you some background to the language of the promise that the prophets use. First, eschatology is the study of the final entry of God's kingdom at the end of the world. Eschatology. And it comes from a couple different words. Um, the front, first part of it, eschaton, refers to anything that's last or final. The ology uh, comes from the Greek word logos, which means a discourse, but it means the study of that. The study of last things. And eschatology is what these guys are doing. They're talking about the last times and what's coming at the end of the time. But they do it using a special kind of language. They use apocalyptic language. Apocalyptic writings 
use symbolic language to tell of hidden future events. And this big long word, apocalyptic, uh, it's not a movie, it's not a book, but it helps us understand the language that these men are using. It comes from apocalypsis, which means a revelation or an unveiling of something that's hidden. So they're looking into the future, they're looking at last things, and to the sense that they're talking about last things, we call that eschatology. And the language they use, we call apocalyptic language because they're, they're using code words and code phrases that when they use it, everybody kind of understands what they mean by it. Let me give you uh, some key phrases, some examples. Uh, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. When you read that in the prophets, they're referring to an event in the future that we know because we've got the New Testament, and Jesus told us so, that day is a day when the kingdom will finally be fully, completely expressed in human history. The day of the Lord. They also will say, in that day. Again, referring to that day. They also will use the phrase, in the latter days, which are the days leading up to the last day. And, and they use it consistently amongst themselves. Isaiah and Daniel make extensive references to the kingdom of God. Jesus quotes from both of them, especially from Isaiah. And I held off Daniel because Daniel's the one that makes reference to the Son of Man. And the Son of Man was Jesus' favorite way of describing himself. And when he does that, and when he references Daniel, he's showing us what he means by using the word kingdom. So we're going to see that later. But Isaiah refers to the kingdom of God. So in addition to promises of deliverance, um, Isaiah's writing up to and into the exile. And so imagine yourself as an Israelite or part of the kingdom of Judah. You've been carried off into captivity by the Babylonians. Everything you know have been, has been stripped away from you. You have no rights, no privileges. You're living in slavery and bondage. And you remember the days of Solomon and David. And you're wondering, where is God? Well, Isaiah speaks to that and Daniel speaks to that. And what they say is, God's going, when he's finished with this judgment, he's going to deliver you. And when he delivers you, um, he's going to restore the nation. And under Ezra and Nehemiah, those parts of what Isaiah and Daniel prophesied came true. And that's how Ezra and Nehemiah fit in. They are the fulfillment, a part of the prophecy. But Daniel and Isaiah also spoke of a time reaching to the end of human history where the kingdom of God that they tasted under David and Solomon, that the kingdom of God would be fully and completely expressed. God was going to come. Something else you need to know is that the prophets emphasize that God is a promise-keeping God. When you're sitting in bondage, when you're feeling oppressed, when you feel like there's no hope for you, you need to know that God keeps his promises. The prophets also saw a future kingdom greater than any Israel had ever known or imagined. A future kingdom that was greater. And so they talked about it. And what happened was the hearts of the people turned from saying, I wish it could be like the time of David and Solomon. It turned from that to saying, there's going to be one greater than David and Solomon. 
there's going to be a period where the nation of Israel is going to be the, the spotlight of the nation. And their hearts are being shifted to look forward and not look backward. Something else you need to know is that often near and distant events are described together. Sometimes in the same verses. Sometimes there's a phenomenon of dual fulfillment of the same prophecy. Where there's an immediate fulfillment near in time and a later fulfillment later in time. And then the last thing I want you to see is that blessing and judgment are closely related and in the end, they arrive together. Blessing and judgment are closely related. In the end, they arrive together. The day would be a day of blessing. It would be a day of deliverance and restoration. But it's also a day of judgment and anger as the wrath of God is expressed. Let me give you an example. Amos 5, verses 18 and 19. I believe that, that's up on the screen. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. See, it's not good for everybody. For what good is the day of the Lord to you? It will be darkness and not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. I mean, that's a bad day. Or as though he went to the house, leaned his hand on the wall, and a serpent bit him. And so the day of the Lord is not just a day of blessing, it's also a day of judgment. Now, let's look at the promise in Isaiah and we're going to look at a bunch of scripture tonight because I don't know a better way to get a sense of what Isaiah is doing, what he's saying, and how he's setting the stage for the preaching of Jesus Christ when he would come in the New Testament. After Psalms and Deuteronomy, Jesus quotes the most from Isaiah. After Psalms, which is number one, and Deuteronomy, which is number two, Jesus quotes from Isaiah more than any other Old Testament book. Isaiah speaks of the coming kingdom in five ways that are relevant to our study. And we want to we look at these. I'm going to give you the statements, and I want to look at some specific scriptures so that you can see I'm not making this up, okay? All right. First of all, he makes it very clear God will come. God will come. Again, if you're sitting in captivity, that's a good word to hear. But God's not going to send somebody. He's going to come in person. And this is something that some of them missed when Jesus revealed himself to be the Son of God. They forgot that Isaiah said God was going to come in person. In Isaiah 40, verses 9 to 10, uh, it says, O Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up. Be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold, your God. See, he's come. Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. He's going to come to comfort and save his people. And this is where the concept of gospel or good news comes from in the Old Testament. This is where it begins. When, when Jesus is preaching the gospel, it was based on this idea of the gospel, that God had come. That's the ultimate good news. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. He's come. He's here. He's going to do something. God will deliver his people, and all mankind will see his glory. Listen to this verse, Isaiah 61 and 2. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and deep darkness to people. 
but the Lord will rise over you and his glory will be seen upon you. And, of course, we know the end of the story. We know who he's talking about. But the point is, God will come. And when Isaiah talks about the kingdom, he doesn't separate it from God himself. Secondly, the coming king. Not only is God coming, but there's this concept of a coming king that Isaiah refers to. Familiar verse, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. Now, he's describing a human being because it's someone that's born. His name is though sets him apart. His name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Here's someone born with a name like that described in the Old Testament. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. It's eternal. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom. He's associated now with David, whom God ruled through in the past. To order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts, or armies, will perform this. And so there's a coming king. There's a new king in the line of David associated with David's rule. And they knew the story of David, believe me. And he will govern in a way that absolutely reflects the rule of God. It will be the rule of God when he reigns. So... God will come. There's a coming king. Number three, the coming spirit. The coming spirit. Isaiah is the one who told him this was coming. That the spirit was going to come in a new way. In a way that was very different from what they had known in the past. In Isaiah 44, verses 3 and 4, he says, For I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your descendants. not going to be you but a generation to come, and my blessing on your offspring. They will spring up among the grass like willows by the water courses. He uses ultimately the symbols of water, rain, and rivers to speak of the Holy Spirit. Number four, the coming salvation. The coming salvation. He talks about a salvation that's going to reach the ends of the earth. So it's not just going to be isolated to Israel. It's going to go way beyond that. It will bring complete wholeness and restoration to man and this world in which he lives. Total salvation. I'm going to read a series of verses, but I'm going to give you a heading for each one, okay? Here, here, for Isaiah 33, 24, forgiveness of sin and healing. When he talks about salvation, this is part of what he means, forgiveness of sin and healing. And the inhabitant will say, will not say, I am sick. The person who belongs in this kingdom won't be sick. The people who dwell in it will be forgiven their iniquity. So healing and forgiveness, he's putting the two together. Here's another heading, freedom. When salvation is preached and taught by Isaiah, he associates it with freedom. In Isaiah 35, verses 4 through 6, Say to those who are fearful hearted, Be strong and do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Now what does that look like? Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. The ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. 
The lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb sing. For water shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. That's why when John the Baptist sent to Jesus and said, Are you the one? Are you the one to come? And Jesus said, Go back and tell him this stuff is happening. Tell him this stuff is happening. John knew what that meant. John meant, knew what that meant about Jesus. Isaiah 61 1. Jesus used this verse to describe his ministry. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and opening of the prison to those who are bound. Freedom is part of the salvation that Isaiah anticipated. Peace is also peace. Under the idea of peace, danger and destruction are eliminated. My favorite passage in this whole picture of the kingdom is found in Isaiah 11. I'm just going to read part of it. Isaiah 11, verse 6. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. You say, well, that's not natural. It was originally. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The leopard will not eat the young goat. The calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Can you imagine a bear grazing? Their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now we'll see this more when we get to the New Testament. But the world you and I live in is not the world God originally created it to be. And so when someone comes to you and says, you believe that God made the world? And you say, yes. And they say, well, the world sure is messed up. You see, we always leave the part out that the world is messed up. And it's not the way he originally intended it to be. When man disobeyed and sin entered the picture and Satan became the dominant ruler over this world, he corrupted the entire universe. And nature is unnatural now. Carnivorous activity, animals eating animals while they're still alive, was not part of the original design. Disease, illness, killer storms was not part of creation as God originally meant it to be. That's why Jesus could speak to the storm and tell it to stop it. And it was stopped. And there's another example of him expressing the rule of God, but I don't want to talk about New Testament yet. Peace, peace in that future kingdom. God will rule and everything changes. Everything changes. And the world as we know it is restored to his original purpose and intent. Here's another heading, the resurrection of the dead. Isaiah was the first to point to this as a prophet and to associate it with God's salvation. Isaiah 25 verse 8, he will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. You thought that just came from Revelation. The rebuke of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. Isaiah 26, 19, he says, your dead shall live. Your dead shall live. Here's another heading, a time of great joy. A time of great joy. Isaiah 12, verses 4 through 6, and in that day you will say, praise the Lord. Call upon his name. Declare his deeds among the peoples. Make mention that his name is exalted. 
Sing to the Lord, for He has done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. That day is coming. Everybody's going to know it. Cry out and shout, O inhabitant of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel in your midst. Joy. Isaiah 49, 13. Sing, O heavens. Be joyful, O earth. And break out in singing, O mountains. Can you imagine the Rocky Mountains singing? That would be loud and deep. Be the bass section. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have mercy on his afflicted. Joy. And last of all, number five, as Isaiah gives us a snapshot of the kingdom of God, that kingdom includes a new people, the new people. In Isaiah 27, verses 12 to 13, it says, And it shall come to pass in that day, there's our, our code word, in that day that the Lord will thresh from the channel of the river to the brook of Egypt, and you will be gathered one by one, O you children of Israel. So it shall be in that day the great trumpet will be blown. They will come who are about to perish in the land of Assyria, and they who are outcasts in the land of Egypt, and shall worship the Lord in the holy mount at Jerusalem. Isaiah 66, 18. It shall be that I will gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. They will come from every nation, and all the tribes of Israel scattered abroad will be gathered together. At the end of the age, he says, a trumpet blast will start the gathering. He says the whole earth will see his glory, and the peace and the joy of the kingdom will not be limited just to Israel, but will be extended to all all nations. So do you get something of the flavor of Isaiah now? Uh, it's sometimes you and I read Isaiah and we just, we just don't get it. I don't know about you, but sometimes, especially if it's early in the morning, I'm reading through Isaiah and I'm saying, okay, okay, this is nice. But he's telling them something they had not heard before. And he's giving them insight into a day that's coming that should be a focus of our life something that we look forward to ourselves. Let me close in this way. How do we respond to this? Two things. First, in the dark days, these are fresh words of hope to us of the kingdom to come. Are you experiencing dark days in your life? Can I encourage you that there's a kingdom coming and every tear that you've ever shed and every hurt that you've ever felt will be erased? You see, this wasn't just for people in captivity in Babylon. These words are for you and me. Secondly, as citizens of the kingdom, which we are right now, we can enjoy many aspects of the future kingdom now. Now. And when we get to the New Testament, we'll see what Jesus said about that. But you and I should have a sense of awe and wonder that we get to be part of the kingdom of God. That all this stuff that Isaiah talked about, we are a part of right now. One of the mysteries of the kingdom that we'll be looking at in the New Testament is how could Jesus have said that the kingdom had come when all these things that Isaiah talked about had not happened yet. And Jesus spent a great deal of time trying to explain to his followers that the kingdom of God had arrived in him showing up in his ministry. 
and was being expressed in what Jesus taught and what he did. And I believe that he taught us not only to share the message of Jesus, but to continue the ministry of Jesus. And he still works among us today. And Jesus explained to them that there was an unexpected aspect of the kingdom that the prophets didn't know about. That the kingdom is here now, and you and I that have trusted Jesus, we get to be part of it right now. That everything that's true in those final days in one way or another has become true of us. But we're still here. And we're truly citizens of the kingdom to come. And we can taste it now, the powers of the age to come. The writer of Hebrews says. But there is much more to come in our experience than what we're experiencing. But we're, we're part of it now. And so what do we need to ask the Lord to do? I want us to take a few moments now, and we're stopping a little bit earlier tonight on purpose. I want us to take some time just to respond to the Lord. He is the King, and He is here. And I want to encourage you to worship him tonight. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, uh, we'll have pastors down front. I encourage you to slip out of the pew and just come and talk to us. We would love to share with you how a person becomes part of the kingdom of God. I don't know how you are evaluating your life and how you look over your past, but if you're truthful with yourself, you've messed it up and you need a Savior. And friend, you need to know that's true of every person sitting here. All of us have messed up and we need a Savior. The Bible tells us that if we will repent, which means turn, specifically if we'll repent of our sin, turn away of, from doing things that, that don't please the Lord, from doing things in our own strength, doing things without God, if we'll repent of sin and turn to Him and put our faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, that He will save us and rescue us and at that very moment, everything changes for you. Your sins will be forgiven. The Holy Spirit will come to live inside you, and you will become a part of the kingdom of God. You don't have to understand all that. But you can understand that Jesus is ready for you. He's ready to receive you. You can't do anything to get ready for that. You can't do anything to make yourself good enough for God. Jesus is the only one who has the goodness that God seeks, and he offers it to you as a gift if you'll trust him. Let me ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes before we go into a time of worship and response. Father, thank you, Lord, for revealing to us so very much about the kingdom. And Father, as your people here at Wind Baptist Church, we want to set our hearts to worship you now, to sing your praises, to sing to you. But Father, more than anything else, we pray that you would come into our worship time. We pray that you would come and minister among us and guide us as we respond to you. Father, if we need to come and pray at the altar or pray in our seat, if we need to make a decision tonight that as soon as we leave here, we need to go and speak to someone, make a relationship right, or that we just decide we need to spend more time with you, whatever it is, Lord, as you lead us, Holy Spirit, would you guide us in this time? For we ask it in Jesus' name.